Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode. Attorney General Eric Holder places seizures on cash, cars, and other property, and its effect on how police operations and law enforcement will be able to conduct their programs and services around the country. I originally had planned on doing this show about three weeks ago when Attorney General Holder first made its announcement. I usually try and be very timely, but it's okay because this has been an ongoing topic of discussion that I've had over the years, and particularly some of you who have followed my show and my series on dismantling mandatory minimums and how I make the connection with how many individuals who were subject, particularly in the African-American and Latino community, to CCE's Continuing Criminal Enterprise legislation, as well as RICO legislation, have been the victims, yes, victims, of the use of federal law to seize cash, cars, and other property without warrants or criminal charges. So I was waiting for years to see when a sweeping change, if you will, would take effect because this has been an ongoing part of the presidential administration since at least the last three decades or 30 years, particularly as part of the origins of what we then and now refer to as the war on drugs, which started under the administration sometime during the 70s. But over the course of the years, there have been many advocates, myself included, maybe not as vocal on the national scene as I would have liked to have been, but have been as vocal as I could be, from the surroundings that I have to address the adverse due process issues when the federal law allows for police and state government agencies to seize cash, cars, and other properties without warrants or criminal charges. Because if you are going to seize assets, then how are these individuals going to have the resources needed to effectively defend themselves against a government who would eventually and ultimately charge them? And many of those individuals are faced with mandatory minimums under CCE convictions that include but are not limited to as much as 20 and 30 years. When we come back, we're going to discuss the decision by Attorney General Holder, the United States Department of Justice, and the connection, if you will, with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor and her role when she was a federal judge in New York. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode pertaining to Attorney Eric Holder's decision, Attorney General, excuse me, Eric Holder's decision, along with, because I hate to isolate him as though he made a decision in and of himself. He already catches enough flack. So respectfully to the United States Department of Justice that in his capacity as Attorney General, that a decision was made that would prohibit local and state police from using federal law. Now, let me go back to a story that I had done some, maybe about a year or so now, and I did a thing on BMF, the Black Mafia Family, and that's the name that people gave them. It's not actually a term that had always been used, but it was headed by two brothers, the Flinnery brothers, originally from Detroit, and that would be Demetrius Edward Flinnery, also known as Michi or Big Meech, uh, who's currently serving uh, time under a mandatory minimum sentence through the continuing criminal enterprise, with the underlying offense being money laundering, not drugs, by the way, but money laundering, 
And he's under a 30-year sentence, and to my best knowledge and belief, is serving time in Pollock in Louisiana at a minimum federal security. The gentleman has been sort of taken on a bus ride from Pennsylvania to Colorado and all points in between, and within the last couple of months has basically been stationary in Pollock. His brother is Terry Lee Flinnery, a.k.a. Southwest, and that gentleman is incarcerated in Florida in a minimum security facility, also under a CCE conviction, Continuing Criminal Enterprise, in which Meech and Terry, 30-year mandatory minimum sentences. Both of them receive indictments out of Detroit, the Michigan Circuit or the Sixth Circuit, and superseding indictments out of several jurisdictions to include but not be limited to uh, Atlanta, California, etc. What is unique to their story is the 30-year sentence that those gentlemen are serving because nowhere in the initial or the sixth superseding indictment were those gentlemen ever accused of murder or physical violence. The allegations lodged against them through those indictments and the superseding indictments all dealt with allegations of drugs and money laundering. And ultimately, the sentence was based on the underlining offense of money laundering, which gave them 30 years, which I refer to and many in the criminal justice bill calls a pine box sentence. So although you don't sentence them to life without parole or death, when you take a 34-year-old African-American male and give him a 30-year sentence. Ideally, when you look at the lifespan of African-American males, that indeed is a time box or death sentence. Unique to the decision by Attorney General Eric H. Holder Jr. uh, several weeks ago Friday is the fact that both of the Flannery brothers and their story is why there needed to be a sweeping change and the tens of thousands of others who have been adversely affected under the quote-unquote war on drugs, which is really nothing but a war against addiction, has had on the American country uh, as a whole. And really, their Sixth Amendment right to effective legal counsel and the total issue and the premise of us as a country that has always rested on a democracy that you were innocent until proven guilty. So where the government was an agent of prohibiting individuals to have the resources necessary to defend themselves, the decision to recognize this change after three decades really is a subliminal way of acknowledging that we had it wrong. We have tens of thousands of Americans in this country who are the subject of mandatory minimum prison sentences Pine box sentencing because they were denied access to cash, cars, and other properties that would have been beneficial to them and have given them the opportunity needed to secure the appropriate legal representation so that they, in turn, would not be forced to take pleas at the end of the day, but rather would have been afforded an opportunity to have effective and zealous legal representation, which is, is, which is due process. If you deny and a citizen subject to criminal charges by our government, the opportunity to effectively attain legal representation, who in turn can effectively and zealously represent them, then you've denied them due process. 
And even where you are alleging that these individuals could have court-appointed, court-appointed legal representation are not and do not have the resources necessary in many regards to challenge accusations in drug or white-collar crime cases. They're not prepared for that. And I don't like and will never use a term of incompetence to reference an attorney, as it were, but most public defenders on both the federal, state, and local levels are inadequately and ill-prepared to take on the United States Department of Justice or most local district attorney offices on allegations of white-collar crime or drug dealing or kingpin. And so with that being said, when I consider the decision by Attorney General Eric H. Holder and its effect in state police for using federal law to seize cash cards and other property, it goes back to two major arguments. They are doing it, and we're doing it without warrants and without ever officially charging people. So, okay, you're a police officer. You might have an idea or informant who says this particular home is being used for drug dealing. So without executing a warrant for their arrest or search or seizure, you're able to just take any and everything that belonged to them. The asset forfeiture was supposed to afford people a hearing, a right to be heard. But what was really happening over the years, and I've seen this time and time again, even when I analyzed and reviewed the Flinnery Brother cases and their transcripts and the information and the pleadings that were filed in the Sixth Circuit, one of the things that came to my mind, because I was following their case for the issue of mandatory minimums, along with several other individuals who were the subject of mandatory minimum sentencing, and the United States Senate judiciary hearings that were held in September of 2013. And so with that, I realized that these guys had millions of dollars in assets and cash that was seized. How do you expect them to get effective legal representation when you do that? We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry. As we discuss today's episode, Attorney General Eric H. Holder, Jr., decision as it pertains to the Justice Department's policy on barring local and state police from using federal law to seize cash and cars. There are a lot of police around the country who took issue with this policy, but I think with all due respect, they have been abusing it for so long. When our now esteem and Honorable Justice Sonia Sotomayor was a federal judge in the New York Eastern District Circuit, there was a case in which Miller is one of the cases that was cited in which she was called upon to address New York City's use of seasoned assets without affording people due process. And I followed that case to the extent where I believe then and understand it more now that it was going to resolve in something like this eventually happening. Now, many of you know that Attorney General Eric H. Holder and the esteemed Honorable Sonia Sotomayor are both a Bronx Knight. But I'm sure by coming from the borough, the largest city in the United States and one of the largest in the world, that they've been able to see how local and state police have used the federal law to seize cash cards and other property. So it brings me to quote directly from a Washington Post article that was done on this issue, and allow me to quote verbatim. It says, since 2008, thousands of local and state police agencies have made more than 55,000 seizures of cash and property. So that means that 55,000 Americans 
55,000 lives were adversely affected, as far as I'm concerned. They were denied due process, and democracy was ineffective. The Constitution was thrown out the window, and their rights were denied. That's how I interpret it. Uh, but these individuals were denied $3 billion, 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 billion under a civil asset forfeiture program at the Justice Department called the Equitable Sharing. The program has enabled local and state police to make seizures and then, and then, meaning you're taken first, and then have them adopted, quote-unquote, by federal agencies which share in the proceeds. It allowed police departments and drug task forces to keep up to 80% of the proceeds of adopted seizures, with the rest going to federal agencies. Now, ladies and gentlemen, ask yourselves, how much due process is given in that regard where I could take everything that belongs to you, keep 80% of it, and then I charge you for a crime? And then you suffer and you are sentenced under a mandatory minimum with no money to be able to fund or to pay for your legal defense. This was America. This is America, right? I said was as in a past tense, meaning this is what we as Americans were doing. And there's nothing that we should be proud about. There are so many problems with this program that I understand the need for a sweeping change and the necessity. It, it, it is just almost mind-boggling to know that we live in a country where this had transpired and took place for 30 years and nobody did anything. Criminal justice system that's supposed to allow individuals to be innocent until proven guilty. But if you strip me of every tool I need to be proven innocent, yeah, to be proven innocent, then you've denied me due process. And I don't understand for the life of me how anyone could have misinterpreted the applicability of this asset forfeiture under the auspice of a civil, because there's nothing civil about it, because the real thieves here was the government. And then after you take these assets, now they have to prove to you that the assets belong to them. Again, when I was cross-referencing the Flinnery's case, I was blown away the motions that had to be filed where the government actually was saying, well, they have to prove they own it. Really? Why would they have to prove it? You stole it. You took it from them. So now they have to prove to you that it was theirs to start with? Wow. That's very interesting. That's interesting. I want to read another quote. It says, quote, unquote, Holder said, they believe that the new policy will eliminate, eliminate, eliminate any possibility that the adoption process might unintentionally incentivize unnecessary stops and seizures. In other words, any incentive that police and local governments have had to stop and then seize people of cars, of homes, of money, of jewelry, property, that by eliminating this program, it might prevent illegal search and seizures and illegal stops. Okay. So again, follow me. We have an administration that is recognizing that a program that's been in existence for 30 years 
is a problem. And it violated due process. And it was violating the constitutional rights of American citizens. So that when our head, our leader, our attorney general says or suggests by eliminating this process, we will have individuals whose due process and right to due process will no longer be denied or infringed upon. So when you acknowledge that, my next question begs, what do you do about those who've been violated? See, it's not enough with all due respect to recognize that there's been a wrong if you're not going to try and right the wrong beyond this. So I respectfully say if all we're doing is saying we know that what we was doing for 30 years, for 30 years, for 30 years is wrong, what do we do about it? Case in point, in August 2010, Obama, President Obama, signed Senate Bill 1789. And that legislation was a clear announcement to the American people that the government recognizes the disparate impact of sentencing between crack cocaine and powder. And almost five years come August, we haven't released anybody. And I respectfully say we have a president and administration, our President Obama, who with all due respect has one of the worst, the worst, the worst pardon records of any other president in the history of the United States. And in light of the number of individuals who have been adversely affected by the mandatory minimum and the disparity of those sentences, you would think over the last five years that some program or service would be in place to say now that we're recognizing or have recognized the disparity, what do we do to get these people released and get them home? And so I respectfully then say or add, when our Justice Department says we've gotten it wrong, what do we now do to make it right? We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry. Today we're discussing the episode as it pertains to Attorney General Holder's decision to eradicate, I think would be the appropriate word, a 30-year-old practice that allowed or authorized local and state police departments to seize assets belonging to American people without a warrant and without criminal charges. I am constrained to respectfully give you a quote from the FBI's website, and I think the FBI added, in fact, I know that they have added some things to this website as it pertains to defining the different forms of forfeiture because that website had never been as detailed, if you will, as it is now. And I don't know if this is a playback or fight back <laughs> to uh, the uh, Justice Department's decision to address this issue. But they entitle it Asset Forfeiture, and they go on to just basically trying to explain the different types of forfeitures and why they were necessary. And they go on to discuss and they say, quote, the use of asset forfeiture in criminal investigations aims to undermine the economic infrastructure of the criminal enterprise. Criminal enterprises in many ways mirror legitimate businesses, blah, 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 and they go on and on. Asset forfeiture can remove the tools, equipment, cash flow, profit, and sometimes the product itself from the criminals and the criminal organization, rendering the criminal organization powerless to operate. But here's the problem with both criminal and civil asset forfeiture. You are denying the due process prior to actually charging them. Like in the Flannery Brothers case, you seized their assets before they were ever charged. 
okay? So if at the end of the day you're seizing assets before these people are charged, like so many others under CCE and RICO conviction and so many others under local and state laws around the country, then all of this hoopla about what it's supposed to do, if you're guaranteed that these individuals are criminals and you know that they're criminals, then allow due process to play itself out so that when you give them a hearing, an opportunity to be heard, they are able to effectively defend themselves against the allegations that these properties, cash, that is being or has been the subject of a seizure was in fact part of a criminal enterprise. So if you know that you know that this Maybach or this Lamborghini or this Bugatti, you know, or this half $1.8 million in cash is part of a drug enterprise, then let the process play itself out. Let them use their time, money, and resources to effectively defend themselves. So not only would this program tie in their hands, but our government would, would then start to arrest and indict lawyers who were representing these alleged drug dealers and other individuals alleged to commit crimes around the country, from Florida with the Falcons, Augusto Falcon, and a host of other alleged drug dealers, from Supreme in New York, Kenneth Griffith, to a host of others, under the auspice of you're being paid with drug money. So you're money laundering. Again, tying the hands of American people to be able to effectively defend themselves. So if you're locking up their lawyers, alleging that they are recipients of money laundering because they receive money from these individuals who are not yet convicted of being criminals, so you can't say they're criminals and you can't say the lawyers are getting money from criminals because at the time there's no conviction. But if you prevent them from having legal access to some of the best lawyers in the country and you scare off the rest of the lawyers from even thinking to provide them with representation and then you seize all of their assets, how do you call that democracy? How do we call that due process? What about the Constitution? We threw it right out the window. No Bill of Rights, no Constitution, no human rights. Something to think about. According to the FBI's website, they claim that the origins of the seizure of property is a practice long used by the government. They even reference what common law. Again, making an excuse. Excuses deny you on justification for violating the constitutional rights of American people. The seizure of property by law enforcement authorities generally is permissible when the property is evidence of a crime. Okay, well, here's the problem. How is it evidence of a crime where there's no search warrant? There's no sworn testimony to attest to this evidence, and there's no criminal charges. You don't take the evidence and then say, this is from a crime. You arrest that individual, you give them an opportunity to be heard, and then you make a determination that the evidence is the subject of a crime or a criminal enterprise, allowing them fair and equal playing field, the same playing field that you get to operate under. They go on to define the different types of forfeiture actions. Again, as I mentioned earlier, criminal forfeiture, impersonum, meaning that the action is against the person, and that upon conviction, the punitive effect, the forfeiture can be used against the convicted offender. And then civil, which is in rem, meaning it's against the property. And that's a joke. How are you going to basically say, I'm going to take this property, now the property has to prove itself? Really? 
the point in the proceeding generally at which the property may be seized, the burden of proof necessary to forfeit the property, and, quote, in some cases, the type of property interest that can be forfeited. The majority of criminals in this country are the victims of civil forfeiture, which, as our attorney general has announced, is now eradicated or eliminated. 55,000, and that's based on the numbers provided by the Washington Post, and I respectfully believe that there may be many, many, many others. A criminal forfeiture action may be judicial. The property subject to forfeiture is named in the same indictment that charges against the defendant allege the violation. In other words, for people like the Flannery brothers, for example, within the scope of those indictments and even the superseding indictment, they did list forfeiture, but they had seized that forfeiture. And again, if you seize forfeiture and people don't have money and they get to stay in jail and they don't get bond and they can't bail out, you can't hire the best lawyers that money would otherwise be able to buy, and you can't get effective legal representation. It's, 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 it's unconscionable. At some point, these individuals are supposed to be afforded a hearing after, in some regards, they plea. But the government has already held the property for how many years before most of them have an opportunity to enter a plea or go to trial? So they don't have any money. They're just sitting there. And to what we would refer to on the state level as county time or in the federal penitentiary, you would probably sit and you're, and you're sitting like an Atlanta penitentiary, which has a holding facility subject to imprisonment. So you're sitting there two, three years in some regard before your case comes on calendar. But the Flannery Brothers, with all due respect, it was from 2005 to 2008. Three years. Now, I don't speak in terms of them being these, um, what would be the appropriate word, the idol, uh, if you will. I speak it in terms of if you follow their case and you've read the indictments and you followed any of the pleadings in the Sixth Circuit or even the Eleventh Circuit, it will give you, you can glean how this process worked for them or against them, I should say. And it just made me think when I started studying mandatory minimums and following the esteemed Patrick Leahy of Vermont and the esteemed uh, out of Kentucky, Rand Paul, that at some point I was like, wow, this is what's going on. Because you can't talk about mandatory minimums without discussing CCE convictions and RICO convictions, and you can't discuss those in the absence and you cannot discuss those in the absence of discussing forfeitures. So at the end of the day, although you have a criminal forfeiture, civil forfeiture, administrative forfeiture for items valued at a half a million or less, and judicial forfeiture, the burden of proof on the FBI to seize property for civil, administrative, judicial forfeiture is probable cause. A very light burden. And the civil forfeiture that allowed them to take the majority of the assets under the program that our U.S. Department of Justice recently changed is mere notification by mail and publication of the government's intent to forfeit the property. And where are the majority of those individuals at that time? Incarcerated, with no bail, no access to those newspapers or magazines or legal organs. And therefore, they are not, in effect, ever getting notice. And so this has been a scam from day one. And thank God we had an attorney general who was willing to take a stand to say enough is enough. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry.
as we discuss today's episode, Attorney Eric General's decision to eradicate and eliminate one of the most abusive forms of discretion by the United States government, and that is civil forfeiture, that allowed state and local governments to seize cash and other properties in cars without a warrant or criminal charges. 